How do we know that zoo animals are kept in adequate conditions? How do we ensure that their behavioral, social, and psychological needs are actually met? Today, I invite Isabella Clegg, founder of Animal Welfare Expertise, which is an animal behavior and welfare consultancy for zoos, aquaria, and other companies. Her work has been covered by the BBC, New Scientist, and she has given a TED Talk on how studying animal welfare can teach us about our own happiness. Let's jump right in. Welcome to the EcoChat Podcast. In each episode, we chat with experts in conservation, animal welfare, sustainability, or environmental science to learn how you and I can make a difference for the planet. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Let's start with what's your mission? Me, it really is. Uh, enhancing animal welfare and specifically using science and evidence uh, to be able to enhance animal welfare. I guess you could say there's there's different ways that everyone can go about improving animals' lives. Um, but the the strand that I've taken through my career and also my passion is um, using these sort of new tools and techniques, which are mostly coming out of universities, and applying them in practice. So in zoos or in on farms. Um, even for like policy, policy and government projects to try and improve the lives of animals. You mentioned applying science to practical use. So, is there a disconnect right now? And yes. like, what's the problem you're trying to solve? Yeah, I think there is, and I know that's not rocket science. There's a disconnect in in quite a lot of other applied science areas. Um, but I feel like here, um, I think the first the first thing to say is that in terms of what the problem is. It's still very difficult to define animal welfare. Um, you know, the best scholars in the world sometimes don't don't agree on on how to define it. Uh, at the moment, the most sort of well accepted definition is that it's a balance of positive and negative affective states. Um, you can also replace that with positive or negative emotional states, kind of the same thing. It's basically all based on how the animal's feeling. Um, so, are they having more, roughly more positive? feelings, experiences, affect states in their lives are negative, or is it the other way around? And once you can know a little bit more about that, you can start making decisions about whether a practice or a use of these animals is right or wrong. You know, that's then the ethical element of it. But this first step of actually trying to find out what they're experiencing um, is this animal welfare science, and it's still quite new. So it started properly, the first sort of mention of it was in the late 1960s, but it only really started being, you know, well established in the 90s, I would say, 80s, 90s. And then that was in farm animals. Um, so now when we're talking about zoo animals, which is a bit of my speciality, that really has only come in the last, you know, five years where we're applying some some of these ideas about welfare science to the zoo. So, yeah, in terms of the disconnect between um, yeah, the science and the practical. In that sense, in the zoo, there's really there's really not much dialogue going on. So my work and a little bit of my research is trying to be that bridge between the two. You mentioned a really interesting point there, which is it's really hard to measure animal welfare, to yeah. determine it objectively. Yeah. And you mentioned one standard way is to measure the balance between positive and negative states of the animal, like what they're feeling. But even that to me sounds really hard. Like, how do we know what an animal is feeling? Yeah. How does this all work? Yeah, it is very difficult. And just to 
compare it to humans because we're talking really you could you could say the same thing about humans how do you know what a human's really feeling at least a human can talk and tell you things it means they can also you know cover things up and and maybe subconsciously you know not know exactly how they're feeling but at least they can communicate and obviously we can't communicate yet with animals um but the yeah the advantage of that is that sometimes you can say that animals are a little bit more true i guess to how they're feeling inside in that yeah they're, they're less likely to to sort of cover it up and and a big um a big component of animal welfare assessment so that's yeah trying to measure what they feel is um looking at their behavior three sort of main axes i'd say are behavior health um and cognitive so the decisions they're making but the behavior obviously that kind of is also linked to health and cognition in itself so the behavior is the really key one um and so yeah, in terms of assessing welfare, we've had to start getting really good at at doing behavioural observations and analysis of those observations so that you can pick out little indicators that, for example, happen in, you know, if you study an animal for a few months and you find that this, this indicator or this slight subtle behaviour only happens when it seems to be really stressed, you can start saying that that, we call it a welfare indicator is 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 a reliable way to tell that, that the animals um yeah not feeling good what are some of these indicators yeah of course so so some of them might be um you've got your your abnormal behaviors i mean there's there's so many different ones but to cover a few here you've got abnormal repetitive behaviors so those are your typical when lots of people think when they go to zoos and especially old and not sort of not some of the better zoos you'll see in tigers pacing at the fence or sometimes in labs you can see monkeys doing flips you know really repeatedly and that's a a, a real failure to cope with the environment that they're in so it is a form of stress but um they haven't found a way to kind of meet their needs or or um or um achieve that i guess motivation the internal motivation say that they want to a tiger they want to um walk around in the wild they'd want to walk around their territory they'd want to you know make sure that they're uh, maintaining their territory from other males in a zoo they can't do that and so it's a sort of thwarted attempt to, to cope and they they then end up pacing around the boundary of a of a um enclosure repetitively and um yeah that's that's a good indicator that they're not coping very well other ones are more sort of acute stress behaviors like you could have aggression you could have fear behaviors and these you know even if we're talking about wild animals and zoos some of these actually look pretty similar to what you might imagine in your pets like your dog or your cat so wide eyes um ear positions you know are relevant in some animals um sometimes uh yeah hiding themselves or avoiding like preference tests or preferences or avoidance of certain things in certain areas are a really good indicator of what an animal wants and doesn't want um but but the i guess the comprehensive answer to your question is that in order to assess welfare we can't pick any one of those things and just say oh because it's showing abnormal behavior it must be in poor welfare you have to look at loads of different indicators together to be able to get this whole picture of that balance of positive and negative. All right, so that's behavior, and we covered some of the signs that we can use to assess the animal's behavior. Now, what about health and cognition? Yeah, health stuff um, is interesting. Again, in a slight sort of, um, still a kind of disagreement, I guess, within the welfare science field is that um, 
your traditional, your sort of pure welfare scientists would say that welfare is only affected where, uh, um, yeah, welfare is only affected where uh, the animal is feeling good or feeling bad. So health issues can only affect an animal when it has a sort of tangible impact on it. So like if it's got a, a disease and it's making it, fe- it's making it feel sick, nauseous, lethargic, doesn't want to eat, then that is a welfare issue. However, if you've got, for example, an asymptomatic tumour, which doesn't, it's obviously in the animal, it's, um, it's, it may shorten its life eventually, but at that point in time, you're looking at it, it's not having any bad effects on the animal. It still feels very healthy. It feels good. It's doing all its normal behaviours. Technically, in, in welfare science, that's not having a welfare effect. So um, there's an interesting, yeah, another challenge with health issues is that we can't necessarily say that all health issues mean poor welfare. But we've got to try and look at which ones are actually making the animal show. Um, and they kind of are grouped together and they're called sickness behaviours. And they, they're very similar, really, to how humans feel when they're sick. Again, you're, you're, you don't want to eat, you're lethargic, you're tired. You don't really want to see anyone. You socially isolate. Um, yeah, you've got you've got you know sometimes headaches and tummy aches. So you can you might be holding your body, you know, crack, you might hold, holding your body in funny positions, which we can sometimes see with animals too. We can sometimes see facial pain expressions with animals. Not all of them, but some of them we've got that that knowledge about. Um, so yeah, very interesting. We'll go back to cognition in a second. But you mentioned that animals tend to display symptoms that are very similar to what humans would display when they're sick. So, for example, lethargy, social isolation. Does this only apply to species that are similar to humans? Mm -hmm. I'm assuming mammals. Or does this also apply to other types of animals like birds or reptiles, amphibians, etc.? It's it's a great question. I think the social side of it, yes. that's mainly for for social species that they you know they'll have a normal they'll also be all different so some animals will be more social individually than others but you know they will show differences from their baseline if they're feeling ill they'll they'll usually um yeah spend less time with their with their other um, members of their group sometimes though and individually it might be completely different sometimes i don't know if that happens with humans because i'm not like that but um when they feel ill they they really cling on to to other members of their group, so that that could also be one effect. And that's an individ, um, an interesting aspect of animal welfare science is that you can study a species and even a group, but you'll also have individual differences in welfare. So it becomes really hard to to make generalizations sometimes, or you always have to be careful not to make huge generalizations. I think you've got to you've got to do that. Start general, and even for you know some species, we have to start even more general than that. So like families groups tax on you know higher up the the um the level of um you know the species orders higher up the order level um because we don't know enough about individual species um to be able to make those conclusions that makes sense all right so we covered behavior and health what about cognition yeah cognition is really interesting and probably the one we know least about in terms of welfare science um so cognition we're talking about how it interacts with welfare is when decisions that an animal is making are um, are impacting its welfare, and sometimes the other way around too. When an animal's feeling bad, it will also impact then the decisions it's making. So it's kind of a two way two way thing. Um, one aspect of it that I've been looking at is something called cognitive bias. 
which is humans have this too. It's whether you're you make kind of more optimistic judgments or more pessimistic judgments of something that's ambiguous that you don't know whether it will turn out good or turn out bad and you have optimists that that yeah obviously are more positive about it and and pessimists that think it will turn out badly and we can actually measure this in animals and they found really interestingly that much more so than humans I think but still linked to a certain degree that that optimistic like animals are those that are in better welfare and pessimistic like animals seem to be those that are in poorer welfare whereas with humans there's a bit more of a personality level difference um which yeah has a has a has an impact also on how you how you make those judgments but with animals it seems to actually be quite a good measure of welfare itself um so that's one yeah that's one aspect of how you can use cognition to understand animal welfare and then there's other much more um i guess invasive neurological kind of research you can do like um to, to work out what an animal's welfare state is and sadly well quite a lot of it has to be post-mortem because you're looking at brain structures you're looking at um you know even like sort of length of telomeres and there's there's lots of different new exciting areas of of neuroscience I'm not too familiar with that I just read about you know surface level that um we're trying to work out you know can an, is an animal's brain structure, does that differ if it's had a good life versus a bad life? And we're still in quite, kind of the early stages of that. Um, but yeah, my specific interest, I think, with cognition is how it affects behaviorally the, the animal. Very interesting. Can you give me an example of how you would measure optimism versus pessimism for, let's say, a tiger, or you can choose whatever animal you want? Um, it's a great question because it, it can be hard. So I, I've done a study with dolphins and so we tested it with them, but I'm going to, I'll use an example of a dog because it's easier to imagine. But if you have a dog in a room, for example, the first step is to train it um, that if you present a bowl on one side of the room, say the left side, it's always going to be full of food. Um, and if you present the bowl on the right side of the room, it's always going to be empty. And you do one or the other again and again over a series of trials. And if, if you can imagine, you know, dogs are uh, clever enough but this would work really with any animal they learn that when it's on the left side of the room it's going to be full so they start running to the left and when they see it it's on the right they walk slowly there because they kind of know it's going to be empty and once you see that difference in speed you can then present the position right in the middle kind of in a if you can imagine a semi a semicircle with an arc so no difference in distance between those bowls and the dog that bowl um, is in the middle of the of the room and so the dog doesn't know whether it's going to be uh, full or empty it's equidistant from both um, and an optimistic dog would run towards that middle bowl hoping it's going to be full and a pessimistic dog would would walk slowly you know expecting the worst thinking it's going to be empty and that's that's something called judgment bias there's a few different types of cognitive bias but um, that's one way to test judgment bias in animals. And you can adapt that kind of a test to loads of different species. So that's that's exactly the one that I did with um, dolphins. But it's been done, yeah, in lots and lots of different animals. Okay, so it would be a similar setup for dolphins as well? Yeah, exactly. Of course, it would be underwater instead of on land? Yeah, so we used, we used a target and we used fish um, where it got a big fish on one side of the of the pool and uh, it got actually no fish on the other side, but just uh, eye contact and applause from the trainers who it, who it has a good relationship with. So it's kind of positive, but not as positive as a huge fish. Got it, got it. 
Going back to your original mission statement, you would like to apply this science, this animal welfare science, to zoo animals. So why focus specifically on zoo animals? Um, I don't know exactly why I personally ended up there. I think uh, it's one of those things. Yeah, I never had it as a sort of goal of mine, but I ended up ended up there through, I, I did a master's in marine mammal science. So that's whales and dolphins. Um and then a PhD also in dolphin, dolphin welfare assessment. So I think that's the way I guess I ended up with zoo animals. But maybe um, now that I can reflect on it, it works very well for me because I think I like, I really find it interesting, a big diversity of species. And of course, in zoos, you get that. And I also find it really interesting to pair this kind of welfare science um, with with the public debate around zoos. I think that's that's also really interesting is how, People's perceptions of zoos are obviously changing. Zoos themselves are changing. Some of them, I think, are becoming really great centres for conservation and education. Some of them are kind of still stuck in the past and are are, are not good enough in terms of welfare, to, to be you know very honest. Um, and so it's exciting, I guess, being being part of that you know movement. I think hopefully towards towards better zoos and using that welfare science to also communicate to the public what what they're seeing in the zoos. You mentioned there's a disconnect between animal welfare science and what's actually applied in real life on the ground. Mm. So how can we bridge this gap? The one way, I guess, the way that that we do it is having, almost having experience in both industries, so a a leg in both industries. And, you know, we're, uh, the team that I work with has all studied in university. So we're able to read these papers and the and the findings coming out of of scientific papers and digest it down boil it down and kind of package it and and help the zoos implement it on the ground um but sometimes you know you don't need that third party us in the middle you don't need that bridge you can have you know keepers and caretakers of zoos or of anyone of farms of um laboratories who anyone who's working with animals and start reading scientific papers and pulling out bits that they think are applicable to them. Not saying this is an easy job, and of course this is usually on top of of all the other you know animal care stuff they have to do. But luckily, more and more, it's becoming recognised as an important part of their jobs. Which means that you know the the top managers of all of these facilities are allowing their staff to dedicate more and more time to understanding welfare science research. Um, and applying it so I think that's that's already heading the right way but you know for people who look after animals that's one way you can you can start understanding welfare scientists to read some of these papers um and yeah I think the other part of it is potentially you know using using all the sort of technological tools we have um at our disposal at the moment to to either gather more knowledge or apply it on the ground so in the past, if you wanted to do a behavioural observation on an animal, you might have to use paper and pen, then you'd have to enter the data, then you'd have to analyse it. And these days we have, you know, digital platforms that allow us to, and I mean, I'm still, I'm still, you know, having my eyes on the animals, still logging the, the behaviour in this platform, and it then, you know, uh, orders it for me and allows me to analyse it. But I'm sure soon in the future, we'll be able to have, you know, autonomous observations of these animals where it will you know obviously they'll they'll take lots of footage and it will analyze it all for us and spit it out and say you know these animals are spending this amount of time doing this and all that so i guess yeah being up to date with te- technology i would say is also a, a good one to do yeah i think these ai tools will 
definitely come out in the near future. Yeah. And there's already a ton of them that can, for example, summarize scientific papers and spit it out in an easy-to-read format. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've recently heard of an AI that has been trained on facial recognition of individual animals. So that's super exciting. Yeah. I think the intersect between AI technology and how it can be applied to animal welfare is super interesting. Exactly. I think you're right. And I think that's another example of where it's much further along with farm animals, because obviously there's also like way more farms, way more data to train these models, whereas zoo animals, it's not quite there yet. And, you know, we've got lots of different types of animals that the, the, the um, programs have to learn how to categorize. But yeah, it won't be long. Going down this rabbit hole of AI, <laughs> do you know of any projects that are being conducted right now on like classifying animal behavior? No, I don't. I mean, I know, um, I know a lot of auto detection projects that are, are going along definitely. So for example, there's one on polar bears. I know a couple of dolphin facilities that are doing it, but of course that's slightly difficult with dolphins is that they have to if contend with the water surface you've got usually the cameras above the surface that are trying to detect dolphins that sometimes go below um so there's a little bit more effort that's needed with that um but no in terms of you know the other side of it how else can ai help us with welfare assessment you know for example i, I reckon um compiling lots of different types of data and giving a sort of holistic uh, evaluation of it could be something that ai could help us with um i know some some people who are very early stage thinking about how that might be. But I think, I guess always with AI, the difficulty is if we, we're not experienced enough in how, you know, we're doing these welfare assessments. And by that, I mean, it's still quite early days of, of doing these welfare assessments. It's quite hard to train an AI model, an AI program to, to do that. So I, I wonder whether we need a few more years of experience, you know, on, on the human side of it before we're able to train an AI model to do it. Right. That's true. Like to, to train a model, you need to feed it both the data and the answer. Yeah. But if we don't know the answer, for example, if we don't know what the animal is thinking or feeling, then it would be challenging to actually train a model. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, going back to implementing these animal welfare science changes on the ground in zoos, can you give us some case studies where, you know, you applied some recommendations and it has really improved the welfare of the animals there? Yeah. Um, uh, what, what would be the best one? I think something which topic close to my heart would be something called enrichment, which is basically anything you can do to um, challenge the animal cognitively and uh, environmentally. So especially for animals that are kind of have more advanced cognitive abilities like your, your elephants, dolphins, apes. Um, what can you, what kind of puzzles, games, you know, foraging activities can the keepers give them to them each day that that will get them to be really engaged with their environment and spend a long time kind of looking for their food and able, like, like they would in the wild, basically. Um, and it kind of sounds, I don't know if it sounds simple or not, but it's actually, it's pretty difficult in practice, especially for example, with dolphins, where you're talking about having to pr provide those things underwater. Um, but I think through these, for example, assessments that we've done, um, and I guess from experience of how best to set up an enrichment program like that, so how how often should you apply it, how often should you change it, um, who should do it, how do you record it and analyse it and evaluate your program. So, for example, some of the zoos that I've helped um, or we've helped put in 
a new enrichment program for, we can see real changes in the animal's behavior. So they spend more time looking for food, they then spend less time looking for humans, which is a really important one. So although it might seem like it's a good thing if you have your zoo animals that, you know, like the humans enough or the keepers or the visitors to watch them, we don't we don't really want that. We want them to be behaving like animals and, you know, exploring their environment and interacting with each other. So when you see, you know, increases in behavior of of um, interacting with their environment or um, yeah, being social or maybe sometimes even increased breeding success and less time waiting for the keepers to arrive, that's a really good sign that you're doing the right thing. Um, so yeah, we've had a few examples of that with, with dolphins and, and seals um, and yeah, a few other species too. So that's always really rewarding. Can you explain what exactly is enrichment and what are some examples of enrichment that you've added for dolphins, for seals, for apes, etc.? Yeah, yeah, of course. So enrichment, as I was saying, is those any activity or device that you can give an animal to um, make it more interested in its environment or um, or increase that foraging behavior. And by that, I mean something, for example, that hides the animal's food within it. So you could think of something like they're called puzzle feeders sometimes, but um, and you can have them for dogs. They, they're sometimes like Kongs, where you know you have uh, a structure, a ball maybe with a few holes in it, and you put the animal's food inside it. So it's just a little bit harder than just giving the animal the food straight away. It has to roll the ball around, or um, you know, move something so that something gets released, so that they can then access the food. And so they're engaging their brain a little bit to work out how can I get that that food out. Um, the difficulty is, is that, uh, as I was saying, with the more cognitively advanced animals, they'll learn that pretty quickly and it becomes quite easy. So you have to keep varying the challenges and the puzzles and the different objects so that they don't, you know, get find it too easy, basically. So some cool ones for dolphins are, you know, you, they've got lots of these different puzzle feeders. You can have lots of different shapes with holes in it so that, and you can put them so they sink underwater so that the dolphins have to go down. Uh, and nose around with their with their rostrums that's what their their noses are called um to or their mouth sorry to to find these fish that you can put in it um there's loads of other ones too so um you can get them to have a kind of maze where they have to move something along down the maze to be able to then uh if they get that to the end then they can the the, the fish will be released so it's kind of like a challenge you can give them like multi-step things where for example, you leave different, for example, weighted objects around their pool and you have a you have a box where um, if you put, you know, a certain amount of weighted objects, uh, the, a trap door will release and the fish will be released as well. So, again, you can you can teach them step by step how to how to access the fish, but they will eventually learn that they have to go around the pool collecting all these weights, put them in. The, it's kind of like a vending machine, put them in the box and then then their fish will be released. Um, and the same principles you can do with all other animals, so apes too. And I mean, apes are, as we know, super cognitively advanced. So you can have this and much more complicated, you know, mazes that they can um, that they can play with to, to access food. Sometimes not even to access food. It doesn't, it doesn't always need to be about foraging. Um, sometimes uh, promoting tool use. So we know that some of the chimpanzees will, will use, for example, um, you know the termite fishing they'll use sticks to get termites out of a mound and so you know part of it is making a fake termite mound putting 
little bugs inside, giving them the tools somewhere else in the enclosure and, and allowing them to, to show that natural behavior. It seems like quite a complex system to implement. You mentioned, for example, you need to switch things up frequently. Yeah. So would this only be feasible for zoos which have adequate funding or resources or personnel? And then what about zoos that lack these resources or bandwidth? Yeah. What can they do? Yeah, yeah, you're totally right. It definitely is. Um, and I think, again, interestingly, we can bring in technology here and start thinking about automation. And I know this is a cost, an initial outlay, an initial cost for, for enrichment. But, for example, if we can have you know, automated feeders that will you know, automatically release the food if the animals you know, do this, this and this, but you have them all set up around the enclosure, lots of different types, and you can remotely turn on you know, which ones are active, that will um, be loads of variability for the animals and takes away that keeper time to you know, put in, keep on removing, putting in these different items, you know, putting in the food. Um, and that, I think, is, is what the most expensive and time-consuming thing is, is, is the keeper time. So I'm hoping that with, with more technology and automation, some of this will become, will become easier. Um, but it's certainly a challenge for smaller zoos. And one way they can get around this is to um, partner with universities and students who are often doing really cool projects or want to do cool projects of um, building or developing enrichment, uh, applying it and measuring the results. So I'd suggest that to anyone who's thinking about lack of funding is try to partner with people, you know, with that you can have a mutually beneficial <laughs> project. Is there any funding or program that can help out zoos in need? Because I'm just thinking about the zoos in developing countries. Yeah. Um, I've been to some of them and they're pretty run down. Yeah. And the animals there are pretty miserable as far as I can tell. Yeah. It seems like the limiting factor for them is they, they don't have enough resources to provide yeah. enrichment, to provide you know enough care for yeah, the yeah. animals. And that's why the, the welfare conditions are so low. So, yeah, I was wondering, like, what can we do to help these zoos out? Yeah, yeah, it's a great point. And I think, yeah, they're lacking in funding and resources, but they're also lacking in, I think, in the knowledge side of, of welfare science. So I think you'd have to go at it from, which, of course, is partly funding, but but you'd have to go to, you couldn't just, you know, give them some of these items. You'd have to also teach teach them how to use them, you know, for the, for the animal's best interest. But I think there's not one centralized fund, but things that I've heard of working really well, for example, are like Amazon wish lists, where, for example, a zoo in a developing country could put up a wish list of um, of different enrichment items and people, you know, do a campaign and people, you know, from the other side of the world can buy them and see them being given to the animals, which is I think that's always worked really well. And especially, you know, everything has to be leveraged by social media these days. And I think that would work really well also as a social media campaign for a zoo if they could if they could offer that to their animals um i think there's some industry associations in in um developed countries that would would also potentially provide funding for for develop developing countries to to develop their enrichment programs or their welfare programs um but that's again certain associations will offer that some some don't um but yeah, I think I think in general, I think education and, and knowledge is, is kind of the starting point for a lot of this, because at the same time, people do tend to focus on like the cost of enrichment. But actually, some of the most successful enrichment I've been part of implementing is 
can be always like upcycled materials, recycled materials, fire hose, so the so the discarded or not used anymore fire hose that fire stations don't need anymore is an amazing material to make, you know, climbing structures or um even feeder toys or any kind of like it's very tough and durable of course and it, you can also like punch holes in it thread it together really really versatile and there's actually a few companies out there that are um you know showing people what they can do with all this um there's loads of different actually enrichment uh companies who have some free resources online so that's another way that um developing countries could could um develop their programs but yeah i would say to for those zoos there it's also once you start getting that knowledge of welfare science and you're you know and want to implement enrichment it's actually pretty easy to find the materials um you, can, you know they'll they're, they're sort of um yeah plastic and and although not always this is another debate about whether we should use plastic as, as enrichment for zoo animals some people say no because it doesn't look natural but at the same time as we know, plastic is discarded everywhere. It's also really tough and durable, and that's what you need sometimes for these big, you know, these big animals that are like polar bear that's going to just destroy anything that's not not tough enough. Um, so I would say, especially for zoos with the lack of funding, you know, try and try and use discarded materials, obviously that are safe for the animals, but um, making your own enrichment can be can be done that way. All right, we mentioned education, knowledge, funding, and resources. Are there any other noteworthy factors that you think are limiting zoos from providing their animals with adequate welfare conditions? Um, good question. I think nothing really off the top of my head. I'd say it's a bit of a nuanced one, but I think public opinion is starting to be much more um, important than it was in the past. And maybe that's a result of the social media access, really. I guess that everyone... Everyone can maybe see what's going on and share it with the whole world at these different zoos, which of course is a really good thing in some sense. But but on the other hand, can I guess drive zoos to do some things more than others? So, for example, I can see a lot of um, anthropomorphic, so you know, um, making animals seem like they're humans, basically. You know, like doing a birthday party or for for a penguin or making a cake and or doing a Halloween thing for a, a tiger. I I don't want to slam that because I think it's fun and um and it can be great for the animals. I just think that that shouldn't be the only type of enrichment that that is done. That has to be in addition to all of this other effort behind the scenes usually where you're making all of these challenges and devices for the animals. And of course, yeah, post post the the, the pumpkin on Halloween um but also make sure that you're you're doing all of this other stuff and again like i said before it's it's great social media content to watch you know watching a chimpanzee fitting for termites in in a zoo is you know what what more could you want like that's that's basically like going and seeing them in the wild people people i think there's a bit of a an old school thought that that zoos don't really want to show their behind the scenes or show too much because they're worried about Will get criticized and understandably because you know activist groups are criticizing them but at the same time by not showing really what's going on they're, they're sort of they're losing their main weapon which is that they have amazing animals that we can see amazing behaviors you know that we can see them doing amazing behaviors so i hope that that's a sort of aspect of future um, future zoos is really really showing the public um what goes on 
in the best possible light. Do you think species with large territories in the wild, for example, tigers or orangutans, dolphins, should they even be kept in captivity? Mm, that's a good question. Um, I think I would take dolphins off that list. They don't tend to have um, that big of a kind of a home range. They tend to be yeah residential, but you can have some cetaceans that that do migrate. Some killer whales do, um, which aren't technically dolphins, but um I, that's one way that there has been a few papers and research research saying that yes maybe size of territory is a really good indicator of whether how well they do in captivity but i do think since that research which was kind of about 10 years ago we've realized that there's a few other things that definitely will also make a difference and it's not always that that territory is a good indicator tigers surprisingly although we do often see them pacing they can do really well in zoos but then other species like polar bears who also have huge ranges really don't seem to um so i think there is there are other aspects going on um and i think uh i think again kind of back to what we talked about with um welfare assessment and you can't take one aspect and say that you know this this will make them do well and do this won't you have to look at a few different things um so i think i would i would say that that doesn't mean to say that there aren't some animals that that shouldn't be kept in zoos or can only be kept in captivity if you know you spend a huge amount of money on it and that that usually isn't feasible for a, for a zoo's business model they can't you know they can't have enough money from visitors tickets to be able to spend on the money but some projects and i'm thinking about dolphins here because some projects are funded by governments so for example a few dolphinariums in different countries are closing down and people are wondering what to do with dolphins and some governments are funding or even big companies are funding projects where the dolphins go and live in seaside. They call them sanctuaries. Now, yeah, this costs a lot of money and it's not as well set up for visitors to go and visit. So you won't get the income enough to support the sanctuary from that side. But if you have a big backer like a government or a big company, that that might be feasible. and That might be the only way you can keep that animal i don't i don't agree with it fully with dolphins i do think you can keep them in the traditional um non-seaside sanctuaries in good welfare but i think as i said before it's really hard you definitely need to it needs a lot of money spent on it um, and i'm sure that's the same for a few other species got it we talked mostly about mammals so are there any knowledge gaps in terms of animal welfare science for the other types of animals like birds reptiles fish etc yeah of course definitely uh, it's it's yeah it's inevitable that we started with mammals and things that are closer to us um so yeah there's loads of gaps with with other species um there's also great research starting to come out and again like i was saying you can apply the principles of welfare assessment across different species which sounds crazy but you can look at those basic things like sickness behavior body condition social behavior aggressive behavior you know you can apply that and find the different thresholds within different species so we are learning a lot of transferable things from from one species to the other um but there definitely needs to be more done and and i'm very conscious of that in the work that we do so we're trying definitely to to make sure we prioritize other species as well for example we're launching a new campaign to find some bird enrichment ideas um and we've done some assessments recently of you know, a species of Asian wild dog that is really not got much welfare research on it, but we still want to do a welfare assessment to, to you know, start that ball rolling and, and give it some visibility. 
Are there any noteworthy, interesting findings for some other types of animals in terms of their behavior or welfare requirements that you'd like to share? Yeah, I'm sure there are. I'm trying to um, keep my keep ahead of all of this research because there is lots coming out. Um, I saw a paper the other day that was saying that individual preferences in fish welfare apparently are very important, potentially more so than other species. That's that's something I wouldn't expect. You know, you always think of fish as part of massive shoals, but maybe it is that individuals are more, are more different to each other than we think. Um, and yeah, there's definitely some on amphibians. We posted the other day about a, a new paper that's looking at amphibian welfare that found a few different indicators that yeah aren't present in, in mammals, obviously, like a state of torpor where they, they go down, kind of into shutdown mode, which, which mammals don't have. So definitely. I'm also curious about the policy side of things. So are there any like minimum requirements on how to house a certain species at a zoo? Yeah, great question. Um, that really, really differs by country. Um, but in general, I would say it's not as there's not it's not as specific as you might think, probably just because there are so many species that zoos keep that, you know, lawmakers haven't had enough time, I guess, to to develop guidelines or uh, re- regulations for each species so um yes there are some for example for dolphins or for, for apes um sadly the u.s is notoriously uh, a bit outdated in its regulations the last time that your animal welfare act was um updated or, or when it was it was really when it was uh, launched in 1966 i think so um there's definitely updates needed but even you know We've got the EU block that that also doesn't have it, it lets each country come up with its own regulations on zoos, and then within that they've got to come up with their own stuff on on each species. So actually, what zoos mostly rely on, I think, is um, is industry bodies. So like voluntary organisations that are groups of zoos, for example, that have clubbed together and come up with the best practice guidelines for space for you know what you feed these different animals. Um, and that's what is mostly followed. And some of them are also accreditation bodies. So, you know, to be part of it, you have to go and undergo an accreditation and someone, an expect, inspector comes around to check that you're following all these things. Uh, and then, and that way you get to be part of the, the industry body. So, um, yeah, I'd say it's a bit more, um, yeah, governments aren't yet really the, the leaders in this, I don't think. What are some of the certifications or logos that we as visitors should look out for? Yeah, well, that that's a great question because I don't think that there's a really that many that are that visible to the public. They're there, but you have to go looking for them. So you've got the AZA for, for the US citizens. You've got, um, or US, sorry, people who live in the US, you've got the AZA, uh, the American Zoological Association. So they do a really, really high level um, accreditation inspection for their zoo. So if you can see a zoo is it's a member of um, or accredited member of the AZA that's a really good sign I think they say if I'm not wrong about 10 I think it's about 10 percent of their zoos pass their accreditation first time or something so to me that yeah it's, it's quite a good um quite a good metric um over in Europe you've got other things there's one called IASA uh, European Association of Zoos and Aquariums you basically got one of these industry bodies and in, definitely in all developed countries and also for sure in some developing countries. So um, you might have to go and look what the name of that is and then see if they're 
if yours if the zoo you want to visit is accredited but there should be one in most countries and then there's some other kind of third party ones so again in the US there's American Humane which is doing um started to do some zoo accreditation um programs so you could look for that uh personally I'm not sure how stringent that one is I think it's a little bit less um evidence based but at least they're they're probably a bit more visible to the public but I think there is there's actually a big gap there of of you know labels or signposts for the public to be able to find find a zoo uh, you know and whether they're a good quality one or not so you we know we have lots of these kind of labels for food you know you go to a supermarket and you can see that you're buying free range eggs or good welfare beef or you know those kind of things and we I think we need that for, for zoos right and so there's no global certification standard for zoos no no american humane is is doing it globally they're based they're based in the us is mostly assessed in the us but they are going to other countries uh, but it's a, you know it's only been going a few years their their zoo program but yeah got it let's say i'm an average joe i don't know anything about animal welfare or mm. legal stuff or certifications i'm just visiting a zoo on my vacation how do i tell if that zoo has adequate animal welfare standards mm, is there yeah, anything that i should like look out for yeah i think the first thing to say with that the interesting point is that acceptable is going to differ for everyone so what you find acceptable might be different to what i find acceptable but if we say roughly and we can go back to our definition of welfare here that we want the animals to overall be experiencing a more positive life than a more negative life which i think is quite a reasonable place to start um you should be looking for things like we've talked about already in terms of is the animal exploring its environment or is it sitting waiting and looking for keepers or is it pacing you know along the fence is it interacting if it's social is it interacting with the other um with the other animals and how is it interacting is it doing it positively or can you see them maybe fighting um in terms of health we talked about that sickness behavior is it is it on its own is it you know looking lethargic is its coat looking dull is its body condition looking bad or good um interestingly i think people understandably can get quite a good sense quite holistically you know without even thinking you can look at an look at an animal and you can kind of tell whether it's looking basically happy or not um if if there is any doubt try and think about whether what what it should be doing in the wild and is it doing anything close to that when you're watching it in a zoo um of course zoo environments are different to the wild they're never going to be the same and that doesn't mean which, which some people think that you can never have good welfare in a zoo you can it just it's quite hard to do so um don't don't assume just because it's in a zoo it definitely is miserable it might be behaving slightly differently to the wild but not as long as the say the key sort of drivers for those behaviors are the same and by that i mean if we know an animal for example uh likes to like we were saying forage for termites we know that it does that in the wild is it doing that in captivity okay it might not be doing it in exactly the same type of termite mound or it might not be hunting for exactly the same insect but if we can see it rooting around getting out some kind of food then that's the same that is the same kind of behavior that we're seeing so um same category of behavior so yeah i would i would suggest trying to do a little mini welfare assessment yourself try and cover behavior health cognition a little bit see see maybe whether um i mean that would be a hard one but maybe whether it's 
you know, um, I don't know, kind of taking risks and investigating things, even if they might not have a good outcome. Um, and yeah, then you can kind of make a conclusion, I think. Okay, let's say I go to a zoo and the animals look miserable to me. They're pacing around. They're obviously bored or they show signs of depression. Yeah. The conditions are filthy. Yeah. What can I do to influence the zoo yeah. to improve the welfare conditions for the animals? Yeah. I think I would say you've got a level of um, level of kind of chain command that you could do. You could start with just reporting it to the zoo itself. That might be quite difficult and they might not like you doing it, but I would, I would always start there. They're after all the ones that um, are going to be very um, sensitive to, to visitor feedback. So if you can do a feedback form, tell them what you thought and why. Um, the next step up, I think, would be reporting them to a local authority. Uh, that will definitely differ in each country and that might not be available in, in all countries. But have a look, quick Google, you know, put animal welfare reporting in the country you're in. So, for example, in the UK, you can do the RFPCA. Um, I'm not sure exactly. I think you've got uh, a few different bodies in the US. Um, and then the third one, and I'd probably only do this after I've done those other two, and maybe you you don't think you're getting any movement or traction, you could go to social media. You could take a video of it and and post it to social media if you're brave enough, if that's the way you know that you are okay with interacting with the world, because as we all know, it has great power in in kind of forcing change. I think the, the danger with that, and we've spoke about it already, is that you might misinterpret something. So I would warn, yeah, I'd make sure you're you're very sure that that you're seeing some bad welfare conditions. Um, and by that, you know, you could have an animal that's clearly looking very sick, that isn't eating, that can't stand up or something, or is in a tiny, tiny enclosure. I think if that was me, and you know, I was, yeah, I, I might post it on social media and you might get then some kind of campaign or at least support for, for improving the conditions of the animal. But I would definitely suggest first, yeah, feeding back to the zoo and trying to go to the, the reporting channel for your, for your government. Got it, got it. Your work of applying animal welfare science to zoos is obviously very commendable. If our listeners want to contribute to this cause, what would you advise them to do? Yeah, also a great question. And just to say, I know we've talked a lot about zoo animals today. We do work with um, policy and standards and sometimes welfare assessments of other animals too, because luckily it is quite translatable once you have a set of standards for zoo animals they they can be applicable um, with a few tweaks to, to other animals too um so it's for anyone yeah interested in other animals but you can support us definitely by um well first of all i guess you could give us a follow on our social media that is always again a good way to support people these days but, and and through that we can you can learn more about our different like campaigns and and other ways to support us so one thing that we do, um, we have a Patreon channel where you can sign up and subscribe to us for, you know, very there's different levels, but it can be as little as, as $1, or £1 a month. And for that, you can get access to, we give you an intern access to different tools that you might find useful. So again, we were talking about knowledge. We provide, um, for example, uh, we provide reference lists for scientific papers that you can access for free. We provide loads of seminars, recordings so that you can learn about animal welfare topics um so hopefully we've, we're thinking that that's a way to have a mutually beneficial you know relationship you can support us and we can support you um and then otherwise if you you know you can also do a sort of one-off donation to us if you want that's on our website um 
which I can either provide details for or you can link, I guess, after the podcast. Yeah, for sure. I'll definitely add any resources you mention in the description or the show notes of this episode. Yeah, great. I'm also curious to hear your origin story because it's not every day that you suddenly decide, oh, I'm going to start this consultancy to help zoos out and apply animal welfare science. So yeah, how exactly did you come up with this idea and how did you get to where you are today? Yeah, so how I got here was I started off um, wanting to be a vet. I guess a veterinarian is most people, I think, who are interested in animals when they're young. They think, oh, the only thing to do is to be a veterinarian. And then I realized that the bit that really interested me was the behavior side, um, not so much the cutting up animals. So I went first university to study animal behavior, but it had this add on to the degree. It was called animal behavior and welfare. And I was, wasn't so into the welfare. I just wanted to do behavior. But when I got to the university, which was a really great you know, center for welfare research, I found that, that animal welfare was this fascinating new kind of topic that encompassed everything you know encompassed the vet stuff and the behavior and cognition and it was really kind of taking off this would have been like yeah 15 years ago um so that was really exciting and I then moved a little bit into marine mammals um I think probably inspired by one of my lecturers who was who was into that too um so that led me to do a master's in marine mammal science in at the University of Miami uh, again, a really great university for this topic. Um, but interestingly, they hadn't done, they hadn't, they didn't really cover much animal welfare science. They were just looking at uh, marine mammals in the wild and and in captivity, but from a sort of health and training point of view. And so when I was doing sort of the end um, project, I proposed to kind of match the two together, this animal welfare science and uh, marine mammal science and make a welfare assessment for for dolphins in captivity and that then led on to my PhD that was when I, I lived in then in Paris for a bit and um and developed that much further with with the dolphinarium there um and I guess this is a long-winded way of answering your question but after my PhD I realized that um well I didn't really want to do more research and I wanted to work on the ground but there weren't any jobs for anyone who wants to apply sort of welfare assessments especially for zoo animals so I thought I would I would give it a go as as a consultancy which is what we we are um and yeah haven't haven't looked back I especially love definitely the diversity of projects that we get to do which I don't think is is possible in in other traditional jobs and of course there's yeah there's definitely been difficult times it's that's I guess just what happens when you're, you're sort of um, running your own business but um yeah, so far, so far, it's been brilliant. Nice, nice. Do you have a North Star goal of like, where do you want to take your consultancy in five years or 10 years? Um, I don't really, which is funny, because I'm quite organized. And I like thinking about strategy. But I, I don't I don't have a sort of, you know, I want to employ this many people or have this much global reach. I think it sounds very trite and cliche, but I want to keep on helping as many animals as possible so just increase keep on increasing that kind of impact and if that means that we yeah maybe employ more people or maybe it means that we I don't know change from zoo animals to another area maybe more policy stuff because that tends to impact maybe more animals um I'm not sure but I I yeah I just want to keep I guess keep improving the way we're doing things keep engaging I'm really enjoying engaging with people through Patreon and and the sort of public outreach side of stuff that we do and and i guess see where we go nice well i definitely wish you the best of luck with that now 
from your years of experience and work in this field, if you can distill it down to three lessons or call to actions that you'd like to share with our audience, what would that be? Yeah, um, I would say that number one, I think science can can really help us in terms of making objective evaluations of animal welfare and, and focusing on that evidence-based thinking. I know in other industries and areas of life, we we also want to usually follow evidence-based thinking, and it's the same here. We don't want to um, just think about animal welfare subjectively, like I think this is good and this is bad. We want to look at the evidence. Uh, I said number two is that to remember that although it seems like animal um, welfare is kind of focused on health indicators traditionally and that for example animal vets are usually the ones that have the final say on animal welfare we're now realizing that of course there's there's actually much more to it than just health and that is kind of similar to the change that you see with human um, mental health becoming now obviously much more widely recognized than it was in the past where we only looked at physical health of humans Um, and then the last bit I would say is that we've talked a little bit about it, but just be aware that um, not just zoos, but any kind of facility or organisation that use animals, they vary widely in their in terms of how they're managing the animals and their impact on welfare. Um, so if you're wondering about whether something is good for an animal or not, uh, it's probably not going to be a black and white answer of this is bad and this is good. You might have to look within, you know, for example, farming to find which maybe uh, meat or eggs are are, um, are good welfare, or which zoo provides good welfare, or you know all of these different things. Which sports maybe are, are better for welfare than others? And I know that's not an easy answer, and and people in today's world want a yes or a no. But um, yeah, I think it's worth having a little dig at, uh, and finding and finding what you think um, might work for you in terms of what you think is acceptable. Very insightful. Well. Isabella, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Thank you, Sam. Please hand off to the audience where they can contact you or learn more about your work or any other resources you'd like to share. Yeah, of course. Well, thank you for having me. It's been really great. Um, And you can find our website at www.animalwelfareexpertise.com. You can contact us on there if you've got any questions about what I talked about or if you want any scientific papers or anything. Um, You can also find some of our different projects and campaigns like I was saying about bird enrichment or dolphin enrichment um, and work and, and find out there also about if you want to become a Patreon like I was saying to to access some of those um, tools and and subscribe and of course we've also got social media channels um, I think Sam will link them but it's animal welfare expertise on Facebook and Instagram um, those are probably the main ones. Nice. I'll add all of these links in the show notes or the description below, so definitely check that out. That's it for this episode of EcoChat. If you enjoyed this content, please remember to leave a rating and review in whatever podcast platform you listen to. This really helps the show get promoted by the algorithm and get shown to more people. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll meet again next episode.